0: Today's read, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, written by Anthony T. Browder, Part 2, The Stolen Legacy, Chapter 4, The Europeanization of Kemet, Modern Attacks Against an Ancient History, the idea that the people of the Nile Valley were of African origin is certainly not a novel one. The belief that Kemet was populated and ruled by black Africans since its earliest beginning until the end of the native dynasties was widely held by the Kemites and by the Greeks, who had frequent contact with them. Many of the questions concerning the ethnicity of the people of Kemet have been raised since the advent of the discipline of Egyptology in the early 19th century. Prior to that time... Race was not an issue, and the color of the skin of Nile Valley dwellers was generally accepted to be of a dark hue. In his publication, The World in Africa, W.E.B. Dubois explained why Europeans began questioning the race and color of the Egyptians. There can be but one explanation for this vagary of 19th century science. It was due to the slave trade and Negro slavery. It was due to the fact that the rise and support of capitalism called for rationalization based upon degrading and discrediting the Negroid peoples. It is especially significant that the science of Egyptology arose and flourished at the very time that the cotton kingdom reached its greatest power on the foundation of American Negro slavery. The suggestion that the history of ancient Egypt would be rewritten to support a racist ideology is more than a notion. In the late 18th century, a Frenchman by the name of Count Constantine de Volney (1757–1820) wrote a wonderful history book entitled *The Ruins of Empires*, which described his journeys in Egypt between 1783 and 1785. This book became a bestseller in France, and the demand for it was so great that an English version was printed, and an American edition became available in the mid-1790s. Volney's descriptions of the ancient monuments were fair and objective. He described the appearance of the Sphinx as typically Negro in all its features. To some, Volney's descriptions were too accurate, and they had to be modified. For example, in deference to the American attitude regarding people of African descent, British editors decided to omit several lines of text from pages 15, 16, and 17 in the American edition of Ruins of Empires. One specific quotation described the ancient kingdoms of Ethiopia and the Egyptian city of Thebes. Another edited statement, which described the people of Kemet, read, There are a people, now forgotten, who discovered, while others were yet barbarians, the elements of the arts and sciences. A race of men, now ejected from society for their sable skin and frizzled hair, founded on the study of the laws of nature, those civil and religious systems which still govern the universe. Volney discovered this glaring omission only after he had mastered the English language and he forbade the future sale of his work until such time as it could be published in its entirety. This act of censorship was certainly not an isolated incident. It was representative of a clear and consistent pattern of covering up and denying African historical accomplishments. The gross misrepresentations of Nile Valley history have been referred to as a stolen legacy and have been perpetrated by many quote-unquote learned scholars for hundreds of years. Two millennium prior to Volney's travels to the Nile Valley, other Europeans wrote about their experiences and observations. Like Volney, these travelers described people of color whom 15th century Europeans would later enslave and classify as quote-unquote Negroes. As early as the 8th century BCE, Homer, in the Iliad, stated that Zeus and all of the gods of Greece traveled to Africa to feast with Ethiop's faultless men, Four hundred years later, the historian Herodotus remarked, Almost all of the names of the gods came into Greece from Egypt. My inquiries prove that they were all derived from a foreign source, and my opinion is that Egypt furnished the greater number. The Egyptians were the first to introduce solemn assemblies, processions, and litanies to the gods, all of which the Greeks were taught to use. It seems to me a sufficient proof of this that in Egypt these practices have been established from remote antiquity while in Greece they are only recently known. Herodotus also stated that the Greek oracle or prophet was one of two Egyptian women who were allegedly kidnapped from Thebes while set, or say, by Phoenician traders. One was taken to Libya, Oracle of Ammon, and the other was taken to Dodona in Greece. Herodotus also described the Egyptians as black-skinned and having woolly hair. 400 years after the visit of Herodotus to Africa, a Sicilian writer named Diodorus recorded his observations of the Nile Valley inhabitants. The Ethiopians say that the Egyptians are one of their colonies which was brought into Egypt by Osiris. They even allege that this country was originally underwater, but that the Nile, dragging much mud as it flowed from Ethiopia, had finally filled it in and made it a part of the continent. They add that from them, as from their authors and ancestors, the Egyptians get most of their laws. It is from them that the Egyptians have learned to honor kings as gods, and bury them with such pomp. Sculpture and writing were invented by the Ethiopians. Many classical scholars would have us believe that Greek civilization developed independent of any African influence, and that Nile Valley civilization was the product of a mixed society. These same scholars have declared that the eyewitness accounts by the Greeks who consistently described the Egyptians and Ethiopians as black-skinned and woolly-haired, were also erroneous. Even with all of the modern technological advances of today, it is physically impossible for someone living in the 20th century A.C.E. to describe with greater accuracy events which were witnessed in the 9th, 5th, or 1st century B.C.E. It also seems highly unlikely that people would travel to a foreign land and create a culture, philosophy, and religion which they didn't have at home. Traditionally, when people travel outside of their homeland, they generally return with newfound ideas, usually better or at least different than those they already possessed. By contrast, if a country is occupied by a foreign army which is more technologically advanced, that occupying army is likely to impose its technology and culture on the newly conquered occupants. Conversely, if an occupied nation has any technology, philosophy, or theology superior to that of their conquerors, that knowledge will surely be claimed along with the new territories, or it will be summarily repressed, according to an age-old dictum. All's fair in love and war. Throughout the ages, the losers in any conflict have been forced to give up their wealth, their women, and their knowledge. There currently exist volumes of evidence supporting the African origin of Nile Valley civilization and a Nile Valley presence in ancient Europe. Herodotus and other writers reported that Greece had once been conquered by a king named. Sesostris. And Greek legends also indicated that the legendary founder of Athens was an Egyptian named Kekrops. Inscriptions recently found in the Egyptian city of Memphis attributed the conquest of Greece by land and sea to two 12th dynasty kings, Senwoset I and Amenemes II. In Kemet, Sinwasret was also known as Kepre Kare Senwoset One. His name was later changed by the Greeks to Kekrops, and other Greek texts referred to him as Sesostris. Herodotus was responsible for providing ancient ancient Europeans with a first-hand account of his travels. He was given the moniker Father of History by the Roman orator Cicero because he had written a number of books detailing his travels throughout the various parts of Greece, Western Asia, and North Africa. Many of the writings of Herodotus describe the the conquests of the Persian army, and he visited Kemet approximately 50 years after the Persian invasion. The first Persian conquest of Kemet was in 525 BCE, and this was followed by a succession of other foreign invasions. The Greeks came in 332 BCE, the Romans in 30 BCE, the Arabs in 642 ACE, the French in 1798, and the English in 1881. The conquests of Egypt made it possible for many developing nations to wear the banner of civilization for the first time in their recorded history, for they now had access to the accumulated wisdom of more than three thousand years of Nile Valley civilization. The conquests of Egypt after the Common Era also provided their invaders with profound discoveries in the areas of science, math, and archaeology. During the early incursions into Kemet, the invading armies often retained elements of the indigenous culture. Foreign rulers often assumed African names, embraced Nile Valley theology, and worshipped many of the gods of old, while their savants studied the arts and sciences in the numerous temples that were to be found along the Nile. Many of the new ideas that were found in Kemet were infused into the culture of the invaders and dispersed throughout other newly conquered territories. Although Kemet no longer exerted any political influence in the world in the world, her many accomplishments in the areas of science religion, and social behavior continued to influence civilizations for centuries to come. The Greek invasion of Kemet was primarily responsible for the closing of many temples and consolidation of their curriculums in the newly formed city of Alexandria on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The Library of Alexandria was the nexus of a vast educational complex which was said to contain more than 700,000 papyrus scrolls. It had a copy of every existing scroll known to the library administrators. Many were translated from metanetra, hieroglyphic, into Greek. A portion of the library was accidentally destroyed by Julius Caesar during his conquest of Egypt, but it was later rebuilt by his successor, Mark Antony, around 40 BCE. In 391 A.C.E., the Christian emperor, Theodosius, decreed that all that was ancient was pagan and therefore sinful, and the library was burned to the ground by a mob of Christian fanatics. As the knowledge of this ancient library Faded from the memories of later generations, so too did the recollection of the Africans who had founded the earliest civilization in the ancient land that is now called Egypt. The debate over the ethnicity of the ancient Egyptians has increased significantly within the last few years, primarily because of the growth of the African-centered education movement which has spawned the teaching of politically correct history in the United States and many parts of the world. Many classicists have decried this revision of history as Western civilization bashing and the newest academic sport. This topic has also been hotly debated in the press as some of the following newspaper headlines indicate. Some scholars dispute Black Egypt. Theory, Washington Times, May 26, 1990, or Africa's Claim to Egypt's History Grows More Insistent, New York Times, May 4, 1990, and Goodbye, Columbus, Hello, Brave New Multicultural World, Sunday Times, London, July 28, 1991. Many of those articles featured comments by quote-unquote experts who stated that any attempt to associate African people with ancient Egyptian history was nothing less than pure fantasy. One consistent theme in many such articles is the use of photographs of statues with partially damaged faces or full-faced images of personalities of questionable ethnicity. Take, for example, the September 23rd, 1991 issue of Newsweek, which explored the validity of Of Afrocentrism. The magazine cover featured a doctored photograph of an unidentified queen wearing an Egyptian headdress and an earring in the shape of the African continent, colored red, black, and green. Not only was this cover an insult to a legitimate academic pursuit, but it also attempted to challenge the issue of Afrocentricity by posing the question, was Cleopatra Black? The question of Cleopatra's ethnicity is irrelevant because it is generally agreed by all scholars that she was of mixed parentage. The Egyptian queen Cleopatra, V.I.I., was certainly not an African in the traditional sense of the word, but neither should she be considered European. At best, she was a mulatto. Under no condition would she have passed for white in the United States. Had she lived in the Jim Crow era of the 1940s, she most certainly would have been classified as black or negro. Under the racist system of apartheid, which existed in the Union of South Africa, Cleopatra would surely be classified as colored. If the editors of Newsweek were serious about exploring the facts or fantasies of Afrocentrism, they would not have selected the image of Cleopatra V.I.I. to question the validity of a black presence in the Nile Valley. They could have easily focused on the history of Kemet before it was conquered by foreigners and chosen from myriad images which would have supported the assertion of black rulership. One must question their intentions. Cleopatra V.I.I. was born in 69 B.C.E., 1,322 years after Queen Ta'i, 1,400 years after Queen Hatshepsut, and more than 3,000 years after Aha, the first ruler of Upper and Lower Kemet. Why weren't any of these images used to question the ethnicity of the ancient Egyptians? Is it because they are too African in appearance? and their very presence on the cover of newsweek would have rendered the question of their the question of their ethnicity irrelevant all the queens who bore the name cleopatra were descended from the bloodline of the greek soldiers who conquered egypt in 332 bce under the command of alexander of macedonia after his death In 323 BCE, a number of Alexander's generals fought for possession of his conquered territories. The general Ptolemy, who was already based in Alexandria, was successful in staving off all attempts to overthrow him and eventually proclaimed himself king of Egypt and married into the Egyptian royal family. The tradition of Greek generals and soldiers marrying the women of the nations that they conquered was a practice encouraged by Alexander. As a result of this practice, all of the descendants of the Ptolemies were the product of mixed marriages. In Kemet, tradition dictated that the royal bloodline was always passed on through the lineage of the queen. This matrilineal system of determining rulership had been the basis of social organization in the Nile Valley for thousands of years, and it continues in many parts of Africa today. By contrast, the line of succession in Greece and Rome has always been patrilineal, and there were no queens of note in Persian, Greek, or Roman history. Female rulership in European culture is a relatively recent Phenomena because females had no rights that males were obligated to respect. During the Ptolemaic reign, there were two females who ruled Egypt without a male co regent Cleopatra Bernice, 81 to 80 BCE, and Bernice IV, 58 to 55 BCE. Ptolemy XII, who also referred to himself as the New Osiris was the father of the famous Cleopatra V.I.I., who ascended the throne after her father's death in 51 B.C.E. Cleopatra V.I.I. was the first and last of her dynasty to speak Egyptian, and she was totally devoted to maintaining a policy of Egyptian nationalism until her death in 30 B.C.E. After Egypt fell to Rome, the Emperor Augustus claimed it as the greatest prize of the new Roman Empire. Egypt was a bountiful source of grain, which was used to feed the Roman legions as they continued their conquests of Africa and Asia Minor. The Roman emperors maintained their control of Egypt until they were replaced by the Byzantine emperor Constantine in 323 A.C.E. Throughout the 655 years of Greco-Roman rulership, In Egypt, her foreign conquerors added nothing new and often duplicated that which had been in existence thousands of years before their arrival in the Nile Valley. The Greco-Roman period is probably the least important era in the 3,000-year-old history of Kemet, but it contains the greatest amount of it available. But... It contains the greatest amount of available information. The temples of Dendera, Edfu, and kom Ombo were built during this period of foreign occupation, but they pale in comparison to those built a millennium or two earlier. They are, however, the best preserved temples in Egypt, not because they were better built but because they were built later. The Greco-Roman period represented the end of Egypt's control as a dominating world power, and it is often cited because of its undeniably strong European presence. This is not to suggest that the Greeks and Romans did not play an important role in helping modern man gain a better understanding of ancient Kemet. Without the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which was inscribed in 196 BCE and contained several lines of text that were written in Greek, the hieroglyphics probably would not have been deciphered. But then again, if hundreds of thousands of authentic African texts had not been destroyed by foreign invaders, maybe the Medunetra would never have been lost, and there would not have been a need for a Rosetta Stone. The Myth of the Great White Race James Henry Breasted 1865 to 1935 was an American archaeologist who was regarded as one of the world's foremost authorities on the archaeology and history of Egypt and the Near East which are collectively referred to as the Orient He was educated at Yale University and the University of Berlin and became Professor of Egyptology and Oriental History at the University of Chicago in 1905, a position he retained for 30 years. The University of Chicago, one of the premier educational institutions in the world, was established in 1890 and received major endowments, totaling $35 million from its co-founder, John D. Rockefeller. In 1919, John D. Rockefeller, Jr., endowed Breasted with $1.5 million to create the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago. Since its creation, the Oriental Institute has become the world's leading center for the study of the history and civilizations of the Near East. Breasted was highly respected by his peers, and he was a prolific writer who authored more than 100 books on his archaeological findings. In 1916 he published a high school history textbook entitled Ancient Times which contained two chapters on Egypt. Breasted was very specific about his depiction of the ancient Egyptians. He described them as brown-skinned men with dog hair and compared them with the modern inhabitants of Egypt whom he also described as brown men. Ancient Times was revised in 1935, the same year of Breasted's death, and in this new edition, he praised the tremendous progress that had been made in the study of the ancient world during the past 18 years. Breasted acknowledged the invaluable assistance he received from a number of sources, including the Oriental Institute, Howard Carter, the discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun, George Reisner, professor of Egyptology at Harvard, and John D. Rockefeller, Jr. In his revised work, Breasted stated that the history of civilization preceding the Greeks and Romans had been entirely rewritten. He also contrasted the grandeur and beauty of the civilization created by the Egyptians of the Pyramid Age and and compared it with their contemporaries in Europe, We now realize how many more things the men of the Nile could make than the men of Europe who were still living in the Stone Age towns at the very time the Egyptian tomb chapels were built. Breasted also compared the early Egyptian accomplishments in math with those later developed elsewhere in Europe. In plain geometry, it is surprising to find that these earliest known mathematicians already had rules for computing the area of a triangle of a trapezium a circle and the calculation of the area of a hemisphere it was a method rediscovered by the Greeks 1600 years later they also explained how to calculate the content of a frustum of a square pyramid and even the cubical content of a hemisphere could be computed the formula for solving this problem was not discovered in Europe until 3,000 years later. The tone of his revised edition of ancient times began to shift dramatically in the fifth chapter when Breasted began to discuss the quarter of the globe where civilization grew up and developed. He described three continental zones around the Mediterranean as a narrow belt along the northern end of Africa, the western part of Asia, and a large portion of Europe, where human life began and the ancient civilization which was to give rise to Europe and America, developed. Breasted referred to this region as the Great Northwest Quadrant and described its inhabitants as members of a race of white men who have been well called the great white race. The men of this race created the civilization which we have inherited. If we look outside of the great Northwest quadrant, we find in the neighboring territory only two other clearly distinguished races. The mongoloids on the east and the Negroes on the south. These peoples occupy an important place in the modern world but they played no part and the rise of civilization. After the creation of the Oriental Institute, Breasted's archeological research led him to a number of interesting findings, such as the discovery of the earliest known reference of Negro life in Egypt, a relief found in a temple of Ramesses II. This carving was dated to the 13th century BCE and portrayed a large group of defeated soldiers fleeing before the wrath of the Egyptian king. In an attempt to further disassociate the blacks in Africa from the whites in Egypt, Breasted also commented, On the south of the northwest quadrant lay the teeming black world of Africa as it does today. It was separated from the great white race by the broad stretch of the Sahara Desert. The valley of the Nile was the only road leading across the Sahara from south to north Sometimes, the blacks on inner Africa did wander along this road into Egypt, but they came only in small groups. Thus cut off by the desert barrier and living by themselves, they remained uninfluenced by civilization from the north. The negro peoples of Africa were therefore without any influence on the development of early civilization. One would wonder what would cause Breasted to make such a dramatic flip-flop. In 1916, he stated, that Egyptians were members of a, quote-unquote, brown-skinned race, and in 1935, he reversed himself and said that they were now members of the great white race, quote unquote. Did Brested's research suddenly reveal the error of his previously published material, or were there other reasons for his radical and racial change of opinion? In an interview, John G. Jackson, an historian often known for his candor, offered one plausible explanation for Breasted's sudden-about-face on the issue of Egyptian ethnicity. A lot of them, white historians, have taken their position that the African is the low man on the totem pole, and everybody had to be ahead of him. Some of these people are just plain lying, because they have to have capital in order to operate james henry breasted is a fine example he published a high school textbook in 1916 called ancient times it had two very fine chapters on egypt and he plainly states in there that the ancient egyptians were not white folks but a brown-skinned race and then he needed money to establish the oriental institute and to do research in egypt john d rockefeller jr gave him $1.5 million, and then Breasted got out a new edition of his book, and the Egyptians became members of the Great White Race. In other words, in order to get Rockefeller's money, he had to switch over the Egyptians to the Great White Race. Sheikh Ante Diop, author of African Origin of Civilization, also criticized Breasted's actions in a chapter entitled Egyptian Race Seen by Anthropologists. The dictatorial nature of Breasted's assertion is equaled only by the absence of any foundation, for the author gets caught in his own contradiction by claiming, on the one hand, that the Sahara has always separated Negroes from the Nile, and on the other hand, that this valley was their only road to the north. A glance at the map of Africa shows that one can go from any point on the continent to the Nile Valley without crossing a desert. Breasted's views on the creation of Egyptian civilization by a white race were also shared by one of his contemporaries George Reisner. Reisner 1867 to 1942 was regarded as one of the world's finest excavators and he directed the excavations of Harvard Camp at the Giza Pyramids. He was also curator of Egyptian antiquities at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and a tenured professor of Egyptology at Harvard University. Reisner conducted some of the first excavations in Nubia as early as 1909. He claimed that Nubia was originally governed by a dynasty of white Libyans and that all black dynasties were but an extension of them. Reisner and his associates also expressed the belief that at best the black-skinned Nubians were poor imitators of their lighter-skinned neighbors to the north. In the beginning of the 19th century, a curious paradox began to emerge in an attempt to explain the development of ancient civilizations outside of Europe in regions that were now occupied by Africans. This quote-unquote scholarly explanation required that one dismiss all logical thought and accept the myth that whites traveled outside of Europe into lands populated by blacks where they developed great civilizations. These same whites would later return to Europe and create that which they never possessed. The reality, which was carefully avoided, was that Europeans only became civilized when they left Europe and made contact with Africans in Northern Africa and the quote unquote Orient. During the past 30 years, documentation has emerged which has proven the great white race. Theories of Breasted and Reisner to be totally invalid. In 1992, the research facilitate, the research facilities with which both men were affiliated, the Oriental Institute and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, belatedly created exhibits devoted exclusively to Nubian artifacts. Both exhibitions displayed evidence validating the presence of an indigenous. African population in Nubia that preceded and influenced the indigenous African population in Egypt. In an interview published in the Chicago Tribune, January 30th, 1992, Timothy Kendall, associate curator of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, provided a retrospective view of archaeological research during the early part of the 20th century and described George Rasner as a product of his times who didn't understand he was digging up an independent African kingdom as he moved up the Nile into Nubia. Similarly, Bruce Williams, an archaeological specialist of Nubian culture with the Oriental Institute, also decried the role that racist ideologies played in distorting the perceptions of ancient Nile Valley history. history, Williams notes, early archaeological expeditions were financed by a turn-of-the-century big businessmen who endowed museums and for whom belief in the white man's superiority was virtually a religion. In previous years, museums have only featured temporary Nubian exhibits, or they integrated them into less prominent positions in their Egyptian displays. Notable exceptions are the National Museum at Warsaw, which opened a permanent Nubian exhibit, which opened a permanent Nubian exhibition in 1972, and the British Museum, which opened an exhibit in 1991. The first permanent exhibit in North America, which was devoted solely to Nubian high culture was opened in February 1992 at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, Canada. Now that the issue of an African presence in Nile Valley is being taken more seriously in academic circles, there is another important issue remaining to be resolved. It pertains to the multi-ethnic influence of the Nile Valley this question was most eloquently addressed by Sheikh Anta Diab in his publication, African Origin of Civilization. It would be incorrect to say that civilization was born of racial mixture, for there is proof that it existed in black lands well before any historical contact with Europeans. Ethnically homogeneous, the Negro peoples created all the elements of civilization by adapting to the favorable geographical conditions of their early homelands from then on their countries became magnets attracting the inhabitants of the ill-favored backward lands nearby who tried to move there to improve their existence crossbreeding resulting from this contact was thus a consequence of the civilization already created by blacks rather than its cause. For the same reason Europe in general and Paris or London in particular are gravitational poles where all the races in the world meet and mix every day. But 2,000 years hence it will be inaccurate to explain European civilization of 1992 by the fact that the continent was then saturated by colonials, each of whom contributed his share of genius. On the contrary, we can see that all the foreign elements, outdistanced, require a certain length of time to catch up and for a long time can make no appreciable contribution to technical progress. It was the same in antiquity. All the elements of Egyptian civilization were in were in existence from the beginning. They remained as they were and at most simply disintegrated on contact with the foreigner. The many foreign invaders of the Nile Valley, Hyksos, Libyans, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Turks, French, and British, introduced no new concepts into Kemet. In every instance they left Africa With a knowledge of science, mathematics, astronomy, religion, philosophy, and architecture that was far greater than that which they possessed before their arrival. The Stolen Legacy. Much has been written about the Greek theft and plagiarization of Nile Valley concepts which have been referred to as the stolen legacy. This term was popularized by the late George Granville Mona James in his book entitled Stolen Legacy. Professor James was a learned man and held degrees and teaching certificates in theology, mathematics, Greek, Latin, logic, philosophy, and Social Science. Stolen Legacy was written at a critical juncture in American history and was published in 1954, the same year as the Supreme Court's decision on Brown versus the Board of Education. James was a professor at Arkansas A&M and the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff in 1954. He died under mysterious circumstances shortly after the publication of Stolen Legacy. Dr. James was a brilliant scholar whose thinking transcended the boundaries of traditional academic thought. He re-examined his views of African history and Greek civilization after reading the writings of C. H. Vail, Swinburne, Climber, E. A. Wallace Budge, Godfrey Higgins, and others. According to a former colleague, the noted historian Dr. Josef Benyakinen, these and other writings had a profound impact on James. When he read certain of those texts that included the Memphite Theology, Book of the Revolutions of Ra, etc., and saw architectural and engineering layouts for pyramids, temples, tombs, mastabas, etc., along with their mathematical formula and calculations, he was compelled to rethink his original conclusion on the authenticity of a Greek philosophy, Judaism, and Judeo-Christianity. With respect for the accuracy of Stolen Legacy, which is subtitled, the Greeks were not the authors of Greek philosophy, but the people of North Africa commonly called the Egyptians. Dr. Benyakinen further commented, stolen legacy was thoroughly scrutinized by a large group of African, Asian, and European scholars in the area of Egyptology, paleontology, linguistics, history, theology, philosophy, science, law, metaphysics, political science, etc., in its original manuscript format, and met the approval of most. The objectives of stolen legacy were clearly stated by Professor James. They were, one, to prove that Greek philosophy was a misnomer, two, to demonstrate the African origin of the mysteries schools, three, to create a social reformation through the new philosophy of African redemption. It was quite obvious to James that the evidence in support of the Greek theft of African philosophy was circumstantial at best, All of the accused, against whom charges had been levied, leveled, had been deceased for more than a thousand years, but James was able to compile an impressive body of evidence to substantiate his thesis. Upon thorough investigation of the backgrounds of several Greek scholars, James discovered that they had several factors in common. One, they were known to have studied in Kemet, or they were instructed by others who had studied there. Two, those who had not studied under the priests of Kemet had access to the texts stored in the Library of Alexandria. Three, upon returning to their native cities, many of the Greek scholars were exiled or condemned to death. Four, many of the Greeks, as young students, disappeared from sight only to surface decades later as masters of various schools of thought, foreign to their native lands. At times, Stolen Legacy reads like a mystery novel, and the cast of characters often resemble suspects in a police manhunt. Professor James assumes the dual role of private investigator and prosecuting attorney. He meticulously links each of the accused to a specific crime and presents irrefutable evidence convincing the reader who by now has assumed the persona of a grand juror that each of the defendants should be indicted for the crimes with which they have been charged. The following is a brief deposition of notable Greek scholars and the charges leveled against them in the commission of their crimes. They are grouped according to the schools with which they were affiliated. No names were changed to protect anyone and all dates of birth are approximate and were recorded before the common era. The pre-Socratic Ionian school, Thales, 620-546, is credited with having taught that water is the source of all life and all things are full of God. Anaximander, 610-547, taught that the origin of all things emanates from an infinite source. Anaximenes, uh, unknown birth date to 528 BCE, espoused the view that all things originated from air. Pythagoras, unknown birth to 530 BCE, is credited with teaching knowledge of the summum Bonum, or supreme god, and its relationship to the immortality and salvation of the soul. He also taught geometric sciences, and the science of numbers. In addition, he believed in a universal fire, which was the center of a solar system consisting of nine planets. Professor James stated that all of these teachings were simply modifications of the mystery system, the core curriculum which was taught in the temples of Kemet. Nile Valley philosophy taught a belief in the immortality of the soul its relation to the supreme creative presence, and a belief in the Aeneid, or family of nine Neturu, which were created by the supreme nature. The later Ionian school, Heraclitus, 530 to 470 BCE, believed that fire was the governing element in the universe, and he also taught a philosophy which stressed the union of opposites, Anaxagoras, 500 to 430 BCE taught that nous or mind is the primary force in the universe and he also believed in the law of opposites. Democritus 420 to 316 BCE explained the properties of the atom and the drama of life and death. Once again James pinpoints the Nile Valley origin of these thoughts by showing the relationship between the union of opposites the African concepts of the male and female aspects of Nechiru and the architectural representation for the same as expressed in the Twin Pillars and Tekken in the ancient temples. He also shows that the Greek idea of the atom was derived from the symbolic interpretation of the Atun, which was described as the basic element in all life. The Athenian school, Socrates, 469 to 399 BCE, espoused the philosophical dictum of self-knowledge, Man, know thyself. He also echoed a belief in the concept of the Supreme God, the harmony of the law of opposites and the salvation of the soul. Plato, 427 to 349 BCE, was a master of many philosophies such as The Creation, Noose, and the Phenomenon of the Universe, Aristotle, 384 to 322 BCE, appears as a multidisciplinarian who excelled in all the previously stated philosophies as well as matters dealing with metaphysics, astronomy, and spirituality. Professor James presented evidence which showed that the teachings of a supreme being existed in Kemet thousands of years before the development of a city or state in ancient Greece. Socrates' thoughts were not only foreign to his fellow countrymen, but they also led to his being accused of corrupting the minds of the youth and introducing strange gods to the populace. For these actions, Socrates was condemned to death and ordered to drink hemlock. Socrates had a number of students under his tutelage at the time of his death. One of his most promising pupils was a 28 year old named Plato. After the death of Socrates, many of his students fled for their own safety, including Plato, who returned to Athens at the age of 40 and established an academy where he instructed students for two decades. Plato was the author of the Timaeus, which recounted the fable of Atlantis, which was told to Solon by an Egyptian priest. Aristotle is described as a multi-talented individual who excelled in subject subject areas for which he was never trained. For example, Socrates taught Plato, and Plato taught Aristotle, but there is no evidence to show that either Socrates or Plato was versed in physics, economics, metaphysics, or politics. James maintains that Aristotle was the personal tutor of Alexander of Macedonia for 13 years, and was rewarded by his former student, after his conquest of Egypt, by being given free access to the accumulated wisdom that was contained within the Library of Alexandria. The issue of Aristotle's authorship of a variety of works was of extreme interest to Professor James. Aristotle is credited with writing hundreds of books, On more than 30 unrelated subjects, citing two of several lists of Aristotle's writings, James shows that they differ in number, style, subject matter, and date. For example, the list of Hermippus 200 BCE contains 400 books, and the list of Ptolemus 200 A.C.E., contains 1,000 books. Professor James asks the reader to consider one simple question. If Aristotle in 200 B.C. had only 400 books, by what miracle did they increase to 1,000 in the 2nd century A.D.? Ancient Greece is described by many as the birthplace of Western or European civilization, and it has held that distinction for the last 2,500 years. Many of the social, political, architectural, and philosophical expressions of world culture have been traced to a common origin in Greece despite their earlier appearance on the continent of Africa. Professor James begs us to consider the fact that it was impossible for the Greeks to teach or claim that which they did not originate. Whether this legacy is referred to as stolen, borrowed, or inherited, it still represents a body of knowledge which was not indigenous to Greece. The consequences of this cover-up, whether intentional or otherwise, will continue to have a profound effect upon future generations until this issue is honestly and fairly addressed. There are many classicists, who have held fast to the belief that the civilization of ancient Greece was not an extension of African or Egyptian civilization. Mary Lefkowitz, humanities professor at Wellesley College, attempts to address this issue in her article in an article entitled Not Out of Africa, The Origins of Greece and the Illusions of Afrocentrists, which appeared in the February 10, 1992 issue of The New Republic, Miss Lefkowitz emphatically states that there is a distinction between influence and origins, a distinction which she says is often lost in the debates on Afrocentrism. Dr. Lefkowitz further declared that to show influence is not to show origin. One people or culture may introduce its ideas or its symbols or its artifacts to another people or culture, but the differences between the peoples and cultures may remain. The evidence of Egyptian influence on certain aspects of Greek culture is plain and undeniable, though surely it must be pointed out that other Mediterranean civilizations also had important influences, important influences on Greek and Egyptian culture, so that the picture of whom came first and who took or loaned what to whom is anything but clear, but the evidence of Egyptian origins for Greek culture is another thing entirely. The key words in Dr. Lefkowitz's defense of the proprietorship of Greek knowledge are influence and origins. These two words must be carefully examined in order to understand why The Greeks are so fervently defended by the promoters of Eurocentric ideology. The Webster's New 20th Century Dictionary gives us the following definitions of influence and origin. Influence, from from influence to flow in. The power of persons or things to affect others seen only in its effects origin from oriri to rise. One, a coming into existence or use beginning. Two, parentage birth lineage. Three, that in which something has its beginning source root cause. The key words in the definition of influence are affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, and effect, E-F-F-E-C-T. To affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, is to imitate or assume the character of, To effect, E-F-F-E-C-T, is the power or ability to produce consequences or results. Simply stated, influence is the power of persons to cause others to imitate aspects of their character in such a manner that it can be witnessed in the actions or creations of the imitators. The central issue surrounding the question of Greek origin or influence Of specific concepts can be determined by analyzing their admiration for the culture of Kemet. The early Greek writers frequently praised the cultural supremacy of the people of Kemet in areas which included but were not limited to religion, philosophy, architecture, astronomy, medicine, science and mathematics, issues of race, did not concern the first Greeks who came to Kemet seeking higher knowledge. But, as Greece became more politically aggressive, under the rulership of Alexander of Macedonia, she became more nationalistic. True to the historical doctrine, to the victor go the spoils, the Greeks, like any other military force, claimed ownership over all they plundered, and their conquest of Kemet was no exception. If the question of the African origin or influence of civilization is much more difficult to answer today than 2,000 years ago, it is primarily because of the role racism has played in the theft and Manipulation of African people and African history. Let us put these ancient historical issues aside for a moment and examine a few relatively contemporary ones. During the period of enslavement in America, hundreds of inventions created by Africans were never acknowledged because the rights of the enslaved or their capacity for intellectual thought were ignored. In the years since emancipation, hundreds of inventions or improvements on existing inventions were made by Africans in America, but again, these creative contributions were never recognized. It wasn't until the late 60s that student demands for black studies forced school systems to begin teaching the forgotten history of African Americans and revelations Of numerous historical accomplishments began to surface. This information had existed all along, but it was only brought to light when students demanded its inclusion into the existing curriculum. A more vivid example of the denial of the African American origins of and influence upon American culture can be found in the history of American music. Let's take, for example, the manipulation of the history and image of Elvis Presley. Fifteen years after his death, Presley is still proclaimed as the king of rock and roll. Recently, the public was allowed for the first time to vote on a stamp design and determine which image of Elvis they wanted to appear on a 29-cent commemorative stamp. Their options were a young, slick-haired Presley, or the image of a more mature, rhinestone-encrusted one. On June 4, 1992, at 6.36 a.m., before a live television audience, the United States Postal Service ended a $300,000 promotional campaign and announced that the youthful Elvis wins Stamp Vote in Landslide. $300,000 campaign? Wow. Why? Is this nation fascinated by the image of an overrated and overweight drug addict? Is it because to many diehard fans, Elvis was their first introduction to a sexually liberated form of music and dance, which for years had been associated with African Americans and considered taboo? In the 1950s, America attempted to prevent her white youth from listening to Negro music, which was commonly referred to in the entertainment industry as jungle music. It was believed that these rhythms led to sexual promiscuity, and music executives were not willing to allow an entertainer of African descent to capture the hearts of millions of white teenage girls. Consequently, Elvis Presley was created. According to an article in the July 27, 1992 issue of People magazine, Elvis was influenced by the butt shaking, butt kicking sound of the black radio stations that played B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf. He loved the sounds around him and pressed them into a compound that no one had heard before. Sam Phillips, the man who is credited with discovering Presley, copied the style of a little known African American entertainer named Otis Blackwell. Phillips paid Blackwell to record several songs which Presley then duplicated note for note and inflection for inflection. Presley was taught how to dance like a soul brother and the rest is music history. Elvis Presley was nothing but an imitator who was influenced by a musical genre which originated within the African-American community. Otis Blackwell, was the author of such Presley hits as All Shook Up, Don't Be Cruel, and Return to Cinder. He also wrote Great Balls of Fire, which was the signature song of Jerry Lee Lewis. Presley's signature song, Hound Dog, was originally performed by the blues singer Big Mama Thornton. Elvis's appreciation for African Americans and their musical contributions was expressed in his statement All niggas can do for me is shine my shoes and buy my records. Rolling Stone magazine, the Bible of popular musical publications, traced the history of quote-unquote rock and roll to Negro spirituals, gospels, the blues, and R&B. The question must be asked, how did Elvis become the king of a musical form that he did not create? Like others before and after him, from Benny Goodman, the King of Swing, to New Kids on the Block, Elvis Presley was the beneficiary of a racist system which continues to deny African people their proper place in music history. It has been written that history repeats itself, and it often casts a shadow on future events. In many respects, the history of music mirrors the history of the world. In both instances, The people who have created the myth of the Greek origins of civilization are the same people who now tell us that Elvis is the king of rock and roll. Those who are conscious of the distortions of history will seek the truth for themselves and see the world differently. Those who are responsible for perpetuating the myths will continue to put just enough spin on the truth to cloud the issue and keep the unsuspecting masses ignorant. (laughs) The Greek Conquest of Kemet Kemet had been occupied by a number of foreign armies, but none was as oppressive as the Persians who last ruled Kemet from 343 to 332 BCE. So totally repressive was their rule that the citizens of Kemet cried out for a conqueror who would deliver them from their misery. Their collective prayers were answered in 332 BCE when the Greek army defeated the Persians and a 24-year-old warrior named Alexander was welcomed as the new deliverer of Kemet. Alexander was the son of Philip II of Macedonia and he fulfilled his father's desire to conquer the world. Macedonia is a mountainous region in southwestern Europe and originally included parts of Bosnia formerly Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and Greece. After 1100 BCE, the Macedonians came under the influence of the Greeks, who were later conquered by Philip of Macedonia in 338 BCE. So envious was Alexander of his father's conquests that he was reputed to have commented, My father will get ahead of me in everything and will leave nothing great for me to do. Alexander was 13 when he began his tutelage under Aristotle, and over the years he developed a great love and appreciation for Greek culture. Alexander was 20 when he became king of Macedonia after the assassination of his father. Alexander's love for Greece was secondary to his lust for power. During an insurrection in the Greek city of Thebes, Alexander's forces sold over 30,000 people into slavery and burned every building in the city, with the exception of the temples and the house of the poet, Pindar. After that battle, Alexander turned his attention to Persia, where he defeated the army of Darius III in 333 BCE, then murdered and enslaved thousands of people. He went on to, quote-unquote, liberate Egypt one year later. Martin Bernal gives a plausible explanation as to why Alexander spared the home of Pindar during the destruction of Thebes. Early in the 5th century BC, the poet Pindar wrote a hymn to Amon, which opened Amon, King of Olympus. This cult of the Libyan variant of the Egyptian Amon was attached to Pindar's native town of Thebes. Alexander consolidated his rulership of Egypt in the newly created city of Alexandria, which was located on a strip of land between Lake Merotis and the Mediterranean Sea. During the construction of the city, Alexander made the long and arduous journey to the Oracle of Ammon, later renamed Zeus Amon, where he was told by the African mystic that he was the son of God. Martin Bernal's Black Athena provides additional information on the importance of this oracle in the life of of Alexander. Alexander the Great clearly considered himself to be a son of Amun. After his conquest of Egypt, he set out into the desert to consult the god's great oracle at the Libyan oasis of Siwa, the oracle told Alexander that he was the god's son, which explains why, from then on, Alexander's coins portray him as a horned Ammon. Alexander's willingness to save the home of the poet Pindar from destruction during the burning of Thebes says something about his respect for the cult of Ammon, which thrived in that city. After his conquest of Egypt, Alexander sought the advice of the oracle of Amon and thereafter declared that Amon not Philip was his true father Alexander's empire extended from Greece to India with Babylon as its capital after his death in Babylon on June 13th 323 BCE Alexander's body was taken to Memphis Egypt and he was buried in a golden coffin in the city of Alexandria His desire to be buried in Egypt, as opposed to Macedonia, Persia, or Greece, and his profound affinity for Egyptian religion says a great deal about that nation's influence over the man historians refer to as Alexander the Great, the Library of Alexandria. In 295 BCE, King Ptolemy I, the successor to Alexander, issued a proclamation declaring that All the books of the world and the writings of all nations be placed within one repository in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. The Latin politician Winterius, a student of Aristotle, was given the task of overseeing the administration of a vast educational complex which consisted of the Musion, a research center, the Temple of Serapis, and the famed Library of Alexandria. It has been acknowledged by Western scholars that this facility established the foundations for the systematic study of mathematics, physics, biology, astronomy, literature, geography, and medicine. It is because of this heritage that many scientific, legal, and religious terms retain their original Latin names, even though it is now considered a dead language. The creation of this new center of learning was due in part to To Alexander's conquering of Egypt and the closing of the numerous temples and universities that were situated along the Nile River, hundreds of thousands of papyrus scrolls were taken to Alexandria, where they were translated, catalogued into ten subject areas, arranged alphabetically by author and stored in the ten research halls designated for specific fields of study, More than half a million books were amassed during a period of two generations, and that number increased to more than 700,000 books over succeeding years. The library also contained an observatory, dissecting rooms, botanical gardens, a zoo, and lecture halls. In addition to the texts that were taken from Kimmet, the Ptolemies allocated tremendous sums of money for their librarians and purchased books from various parts of the known world. Commercial ships that docked in the thriving seaport of Alexandria were often searched by the military and their books were confiscated. Agents were dispatched from Alexandria to various countries where they often often purchased and acquired numerous books through various nefarious means. Egyptian historian Mostafa el-Abadi, author of The Life and Fate of the Ancient Library of Alexandria, stated that not all of the acquisitions were obtained honorably. For example, Ptolemy III gave the city of Athens a substantial amount of silver as collateral for the safe return of the original manuscripts of Aeschylus, Euripides and Sophocles which were to be copied in Alexandria after the library's dictationist read after the library's dictationist read the contents of the manuscripts to the scribes who made several copies of each Ptolemy III returned the facsimiles and kept the originals in Alexandria much to the displeasure of the outraged Athenians for more than 600 years This site was the command center for the world's scientific and cultural development. Euclid, the reputed father of mathematics, studied in in Alexandria and later wrote the Principles of Mathematics, which was to have a profound impact 2,000 years later on a 12-year-old boy named Albert Einstein. Heron invented gear trains and steam engines and authored the first book, on robotics called automata. Apollonius was a mathematician who demonstrated the forms of the conic sections. Hipparchus was an astronomer who mapped the constellations and estimated the intensity of the stars. Galen was a dominant figure in the medical field. His books on healing and anatomy were used until the European Renaissance. The library was also a center for religious research. It was where Hellenized Jewish scholars produced the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Eratosthenes," an Egyptian mathematical scientist and archaeologist, was one of the most famous alumni of this renowned educational center. He rediscovered the formula for measuring the circumference of the earth after stumbling upon an ancient document taken from Syene in Upper Egypt. Eratosthenes was a master of many disciplines. In addition to his fame as an astronomer, philosopher, historian, poet, and theater critic, he was also head librarian of the Library of Alexandria. There is no doubt that access to the accumulated wisdom of Nile Valley scholarship helped to create the foundation upon which scholars, such as Erastosthenes, Galen, Euclid, Dionysius, and hundreds of others stood. The last great scholar affiliated with the famed University of Alexandria was Hypatia. Hypatia was a true scientist in her own right, having gained notoriety in the fields of mathematics, physics, astronomy, and philosophy, She was born in Alexandria in 370 A.C.E., some 400 years after Egypt had been conquered by the Roman army. Her father was the famed Egyptian mathematician Theon, and Hypatia enjoyed many privileges unheard of for women in classical Greek society. Hypatia was 21 years old when the university and its library was ordered destroyed by the Christian emperor Theodosius, who viewed the teachings of science, mathematics, and philosophy as antithetical to the new religion. Despite the threat of personal danger, Hypatia continued to teach and publish because of her close friendship with the Roman governor. These actions angered Cyril, the Archbishop of Alexandria, and in 415 A.C.E., his monks encouraged an angry mob to attack Hypatia as she was writing through town. She was pulled from her chariot and dragged into a church where she was stripped naked and the flesh was scraped from her body with oyster shells. Her corpse was burned along with all of her writings and Archbishop Cyril was made a saint. The destruction of the library and University of Alexandria extinguished the flame of knowledge that had been passed on to the Greeks and Romans by the inhabitants of the Nile Valley. With this glorious light of Egypt now extinguished, the nations of Europe would stumble in darkness for more than a thousand years before knowledge was brought to them during the Moorish conquests. The Roman Conquest of Egypt Cleopatra, V.I.I was the last of the Ptolemies to rule Egypt. Her struggle to retain control over her country has been the subject of numerous plays, novels, and songs. She became queen of Egypt at the age of 17, but was later stripped of power by her brother and co-regent Ptolemy Dionysos. After a period of self-exile in Syria, Cleopatra was returned to power by the Roman general Pompey, who later died in a struggle for power against Julius Caesar. Caesar, who had come to Egypt in pursuit of Pompey, met and fell in love with met and fell in love with Cleopatra and secured her position on the Egyptian throne. Cleopatra gave birth to a son by Caesar and eventually moved to Rome with him, where they lived until Caesar's assassination in 44 B.C.E. After returning to Egypt, she eventually met and fell in love with Mark Antony, one of Caesar's successors. Antony plotted with Cleopatra and utilized the wealth of Egypt to assist him in securing the throne in Rome. These actions angered the Roman emperor Octavian, who declared war on Egypt and defeated the combined forces of Cleopatra and Antony in the Battle of Actium, In 31 BCE, after the death of Cleopatra VII in 30 BCE, the legacy of Egypt was claimed by Rome, which had then become the mightiest nation on earth. Greco-Roman Architecture The Roman conquest of Egypt was similar in many respects to that of the Greeks. In both instances, the wealth and knowledge of the land was appropriated by the new occupants and dispersed throughout their vast empire. Greece and Macedonia had already become a part of the Roman Empire around 146 BCE, and the Romans borrowed the architecture, philosophy, culture, and art of the Greeks, which they spread throughout their ever-expanding empire. Since the Greeks had conquered the Egyptians almost a century earlier, the Romans, while assimilating Greek culture, were also assimilating the Egyptian culture, which the Greeks had appropriated earlier. 3. Excellent examples can be found in the similarities between Greek and Roman architecture, mythology, and their close resemblance to those first developed in Egypt, Kemet, and the evolution of the alphabet from Kemetic to Greek to Roman. Colonnade halls were an integral part of Nile Valley Temple architecture, and they first appeared in Kemet around 2600 BCE, almost 2,000 years before the development of the first Greek city-state. During this time, during the same time, Romulus and Remus, the legendary founders of Rome, were still being nursed by a wolf who served as their surrogate mother. It has been suggested by the mathematical scientist Livio Ceticini that the column represents the map of Egypt. The shaft is... Upper Egypt, the south, and the capital is Lower Egypt, the north. According to Settuccini, the symbolic proportion of the geographic and geometric ratios in the Egyptian columns were duplicated by the Greeks. This explains why, among the Greeks who learned the use of the columns from the Egyptians for the Doric order, the most conservative of the Greek orders, there was a rule that the shaft should be six units high and the capital one unit high. In the Greek orders, the base of the column preserves the arrangement on three horizontal lines, which are the symbol of the Tropic of Cancer. The column basically represents the three meridians of Egypt, and through its curvature suggests the extension of the system of meridians to the east and west of Egypt. But, since the column is circular, the structure of the column was related to the problem of presenting the map of Egypt as part of a cylindrical projection of the surface of the Earth. The elaborate numerical rules for the proportions of Greek columns can be explained when one considers the two interrelated problems of describing mathematically the curvature of the earth and of projecting a curved surface on a flat map. The theory of conic sections, which is considered their highest achievement of Greek mathematics, may have been developed in order to solve these problems. Columns consists of three primary components— a capital and a shaft, which usually rests on a base. Above the columns is a horizontal beam of stones called an entablature, which supports the roof. These two elements, the column and entablature, comprised in classical architecture what was referred to as an order. Three orders evolved in Greece and two in Rome. They have had a profound influence on later architectural styles. The Doric Order was the first and most simplistic of the three Greek Orders. Normally, the Doric is the only order that does not have a base. The second order developed by the Greeks was the Ionic. Its capital is carved with decorations that symbolized spiral scrolls. The Corinthian Order is the last of the three Greek Orders. It is similar to the, iconic or- the Ionic Order, but its capital is elaborately dis- decorated with carvings of leaves that represented the acan- Acanthus plant, Roman columns were practically identical to the Greek columns and had only minimum modifications. The Tuscan order resembled the Doric order, but it has a base and the shaft, but it has a base, and the shaft is unfluted. The composite order was essentially a combination of the Greek ionic and Corinthian orders. Its capital was comprised of the carved scroll of the Ionic Order and the acanthus-leaf decoration of the Corinthian. Greco-Roman Mythology Just as certain architectural stylings which originated in Kemet greatly influenced the Greeks and Romans, the same can be said for the Nile Valley concepts of the Netcharu, whom the Greeks and Romans referred to as gods. The Pyramid Texts and Kemet, 3200 to 2250 BCE, described a family of nine Necheru, which became known as the Great Ennead. This term is derived from the Greek word Ennea, which means nine. The basic sources of Greek mythology, all of their primary characters and themes, were contained in three classical works, Hesiod's Theogony, and Homer's Iliad and Odyssey which were all written in the 8th century BCE. During the 3rd century BCE, the Romans began to closely identify with divinities of Greece. Rome's classical literature of religious and moral teachings was written in the latter years of the 1st century BCE by the poet Virgil. This great work was called the Aeneid, and it consisted of 12 books, Virgil-based the first six books on the Odyssey and the last six books were modeled after the Iliad. Virgil wrote the Aenid to establish the divinity of the Roman Empire, which he closely associated with that of Greece. The following table lists similarities between some of the naturu of Kimet and gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome. Kimet had Amon. Greece had Zeus. Rome, Jupiter. The divine aspects of all, they were the ruler of the gods. Kemet had Bess. Greece had Dionys- Dionysus. Rome had Bacchus. The divine aspects, god of wine and reckless behavior. Kemet had Jehudi, Toth, Greece, Hermes, Rome, Mercury. Divine aspects, messenger of the gods and god of science. Kemet, Het Heru. Hathor, Greece, Aphrodite, Rome, Venus, Divine Aspects, Goddess of Love and Beauty, Kemet, Heru, Horus, Greece, Apollo, Rome, Apollo, Divine Aspects, the Son of God also associated with light and the sun, Kemet, Imhotep, Greece, Asclepius, Rome, Aesculapius, divine aspects, god of healing, Kemet, Neith, Greece, Athena, Rome, Minerva, divine aspects, goddess of crafts, war and wisdom, the alphabet. One of the most significant contributions to have emerged from Rome is the 26-letter Roman alphabet, but as one might suspect, this alphabet was a modified version of the system which was derived from the Greeks. In fact, the word alphabet is derived from alpha and beta, the first two letters of the Greek alphabet. The word alpha and beta were derived from the Semitic words aleph and beth, which were derivatives of characters that were first developed in Kimet. The following is an abbreviated Chronology of the Evolution of the Alphabet, ref- referenced in the 1986 edition of the World Book Encyclopedia. And I really suggest anybody listening to this get a copy of this book so you can see the visuals in this book. It's worth it. Um, yeah, I can't read the visuals The symbols, the comparisons, it's worth it to to purchase this book. Meadow the oldest form of writing, was developed in the upper regions of the Nile Valley, and by 3000 BCE it was being used in ancient Kemet. These early signs specified the consonants in syllables and no vowels were written. The Semites developed their alphabet around 1500 BCE, and they also wrote without vowels. In an attempt to stress the originality of the Semitic alphabet, the World Book Encyclopedia states, historians can find no instances where the Semites borrowed the characters from Egyptian writing. They invented their own set of characters to stand for the consonants in their language. However, upon examination, one will find every character in the Semitic alphabet is identical to those that came from Kemet. In fact, even the meanings are the same. The next significant writing system emerged around 1000 BCE, and it was developed by people who, like the Semites, also lived along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were called Phoenicians, and their alphabet was similar to the ones developed by the Kemetic people and the Semites. The Phoenician alphabet contained only consonants and lacked vowels. While the characters of the Phoenician alphabet were markedly different from the Semitic and Kemetic, their meanings were similar in many respects. The Greeks developed their alphabet from the Phoenicians and began using a modified version of it around 800 BCE. The Phoenician alphabet contained more consonants than the Greeks could effectively use in their language. They began using the extra characters for vowel sounds. The Greeks also modified the shapes of the Phoenician characters. Some were inverted, and others were stylistically altered. Some characters were added, while others were eliminated. Eventually, the Greeks formed an alphabet that was comprised of 24 letters.